Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And crank up the boys to men, get your endgame visors ready. We are here in the dawn of the final day, the end of all things, Mr. Frodo. If you have been following this along with us from the start in our An Antitrust Epic playlist, thank you so much. We are going to have closing arguments next week, so this isn't quite the last video that will go in some of these playlists, like an antitrust epic, like just the trial, but we are so very close, and I've got good news for you all. If you have lasted this long, Tim Cook is taking the stand, CEO of Apple, and to quote Doc Brown, or to paraphrase Doc Brown, buckle up, because you're going to see some serious, we'll go with stuff for right now. Unfortunately, I'm going to also have to quote from Lin-Manuel Miranda's Broadway musical hit with Aaron Burr and tell you that you are unfortunately going to have to wait for it a little bit. But I think that's going to be okay with you because there really is a lot to say and a lot of interesting new points brought up primarily by the judge against Mr. Cook. And so if you are following this because you believe in Epic's theory, because you want to see Epic win the day on this, uh, I got some news for you. Your case got stronger at the end of the day than it was at the start, and we'll talk about why as part of this video. First, though, we're going to get Apple's direct questioning of Mr. Cook, and as you would expect, it is just as warm and lovely and descriptive of the Apple ecosystem as the great boon to humanity that Apple believes it to be, as you would expect. Once again, we're starting with day 15, Addie Robertson live tweets, last day of Epic versus Apple testimony. Apple is calling Tim Cook to bring its side home with a brief follow-up by Apple's expert InfoSec witness, Aviel Rubin, who didn't get to finish yesterday, and we will find it to be a bit of an anticlimax, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So first, we get a brief rundown of Mr. Cook, Apple's Veronica Moyer running through Cook's history. He joined Apple in 1998 after getting a call out of the blue from Steve Jobs while he was at Compaq. Lawyer asks what Cook's role in managing the App Store is. It's limited, obviously, in review capacity, says Cook. If you aren't familiar with the role of chief executive officer, they are way, way, way above the day-to-day operational fray. They are setting the strategic direction of the entire company. And in a company as large as Apple's, even things that are as lucrative as the App Store, Mr. Cook is not going to be dealing with on a regular basis, or at least not on a day-to-day basis. What is Apple's mission? As described by Mr. Cook here, have this softball CEO of my client, It's to make the best products in the world that really enrich people's lives. Yep, that's a chief executive officer for you folks. I would expect nothing less. How does it do that? Well, we invest like crazy in research and development. We've invested $100 billion since the start of the iPhone's development, and that number has just accelerated. We have a maniacal focus on the user and doing the right thing by the customer. Cook says safety, security, and privacy are key to Apple. He says privacy is key to our civil liberties as Americans. (laughs) And then segues into apps that contain malware or vacuum up data or otherwise harm users. Now, just to back up a step here, you can see me using some uh, hyperbolic voicing for this. There's nothing wrong with this. This is one of the parties to the litigation getting direct testimony of themselves to hype up exactly how great their product is. This is exactly what is to be expected. I will note, though, that for those of you who think that I'm just an Apple shill and have sided against Epic throughout all of this, I don't like Epic's legal theory of the case, and I don't like Tim Sweeney's self-righteousness going out there on Twitter describing this like Mr. Cook does here about 
liberty and Americanism and whatever else Mr. Sweeney puts out there. You'll note, however, that before now, CEO Tim Cook hasn't quite had the same presence and hasn't quite described things, especially on social media, in the same way. Now, as we talked about in the motion stage last fall, both parties, both sides are guilty of some of this glad handing and just talking about how great their products are and how they're all fighting for freedom and justice in the American way or what have you. But it has to be noted, this doesn't help anything on Apple's side. It's just what you expect from the start of testimony. Like the one we saw today, how have developers responded to these changes, the changes that you have put for purposes of mom and apple pie in America? Well, some applaud it and some are not happy with it. Well, what do you do when a dev disagrees with your app review process? We listen. We don't have a tenure, but we're making decisions in the best interests of the user. And I think it's important to know that sometimes there's a conflict between what the developer may want and what the user may want. And that's been one of the things that has been a little bit sidetracked in this entire litigation is this notion that there are effectively multiple levels of markets here. We've talked about it in previous videos in this series. There's a market for the phone. There's a market for the operating system, which Apple doesn't participate in. It doesn't sell its operating system, but is part and parcel to the theory of Epic's case. There's a market for developers where Apple is trying to attract developers to participate in its ecosystem. They say they attract them by having a big audience and having a lot of APIs and having engineering support. And in exchange for that, you give us 30% of the money that you make on our store. And then there's a market for consumers. That is, by and large, developers selling into that consumer market with Apple kind of standing off to the side, except to take their 30%. But all of those markets are a little bit different. And this last sentence that Mr. Cook says is entirely accurate and something that the court is going to have to reflect on as it makes its decision. What is good for the user might not be good for the developer. And that's easy enough to illustrate, right? You can imagine a whole host of bad hat developers, bad folks that are copy pasting, that are potentially putting bad stuff on your phone, but just even over and above that charging $10 and it's all fraud and Apple doesn't want any part of it. And those developers are bad. And if a user buys that, they'll feel bad about spending that $10 and they wish that somebody would have reviewed it and said, no, you can't come on the store. So I can't lose my money in that kind of transaction. And you can imagine a whole host of ways that that can happen. Apple sits here and says, we perform that service. We perform that service, even though we are unloved by all these developers for the benefit of our customers and our users. And some developers don't like that because quite frankly, some developers didn't make a product that was worthy of the App Store, et cetera, et cetera. And you don't have to agree with Apple. I know a lot of you don't agree with Apple, but it is a theory and it is a business model uh, that in general, they have defended and supported pretty well throughout this litigation. Cook reiterates what we've heard before. iPhone holds a lot of sensitive info, much more potentially vulnerable than a Mac. Apple has compensated for that with a very stringent review process, Cook says. We reviewed every app that went onto the store. This was a combination of tools and human review because we care so deeply about safety, security, and privacy for our customers. I'm sure he didn't present it in quite that language or tone, but it certainly comes across that way when it's directly quoted in Ms. Robertson's tweets. And to be fair, this is just Mr. Cook repeating what Apple's theory of the case had been for the last 15 days. He talked about the value proposition. He talked about why app review is useful. He's now talking about the privacy issues that attach with carrying a phone in your pocket and potentially gathering all that information. And he thinks what Apple has done has been a boon to consumers. That's why they have flocked to the ecosystem. And to be fair, 
absent all other evidence to the contrary, which you're not going to skip when you actually make the opinion as the court. But outside of all that, the de facto rule would be, yeah, you made a product that people appear to love, that it's been very, very popular. It has gained market share. You putting that money into research and development and making something appears to be something that users have liked, that developers have liked having access to, even if they don't necessarily like the 30% or don't like not being able to have their own app stores or what have you. Here, we get a question about uh, malware. You can see in third-party data that if you look at the malware that's on iOS versus Android versus Windows, it's literally an off-the-chart level of difference. And we saw this in yesterday's testimony. Judge asks to clarify what the data says. Cook says there's about 1% or 2% of the malware on iPhone versus around 30 or 40% on Android and presumably the other 30 or 40% on Windows. It's quite a difference, says Cook. We're trying to give the customer an integrated solution of hardware, software, and services. I just don't think you replicate that in a third party. And again, that's another kind of main pillar of what we've seen as Apple's defense. This isn't an aftermarket. This isn't a market for an app store and in-app payment purchases. This isn't a market even for an operating system. This is a market for a phone. You buy an iPhone, it's everything that you get in that package. It just works. You hand it to your grandmother and you go about your day. That's the market that Apple wanted. And again, you don't have to agree with them, but I think they've sold that vision to the court pretty succinctly. Is review perfect, Mr. Cook? Again, softballs, you expect this on direct. No, it's not 100%. It's not perfect. You will find mistakes being made. But if you back up and look at it in the scheme of things, we do a really good job. And as we've said, Epic has pushed on the fact that Apple doesn't catch everything. And undoubtedly, Apple does not catch everything. And in fact, you could argue that Apple doesn't catch things that they probably easily should have. And that's what Epic has been focusing on. But Apple has made the salient point that says, okay, we have missed things, but we have stopped a lot of other things. We saw as part of this trial during the trial that they released information that they had stopped a whole lot of fraudulent transactions on the store. And again, that's just a claim. It's not up in evidence in court, but Apple has tried to show that they are doing something to earn that fee, to make their product attractive. And it's that attractiveness that is how developers make money. One of the other arguments that they have made is that if you have these multiple stores, if you have the 400 stores that are in China, if you have even these other avenues, that at least certain developers are going to have findability problems. They're going to have problems with malware on different stores. And even if users can decide to stay on one store or the other or do things with their phone, it is a possibility that developers will actually wind up with a market that is worse for them than had Epic not brought up this case. Now, they haven't really presented a lot of documentation on that primarily because you can't. We're talking about hypotheticals and multi-universes and everything else. But they have made the case that things can get worse. And I know a number of you don't like walled garden ecosystems and Apple on the whole, but Apple has gone out into the market with this product on that premise that the holistic approach to hardware and software is something that at least some people want, and there should be some company making it available to them. Whether or not they win the day on that score is really one of the most important questions at play in this case. We're looking at our first binder exhibit of the day. It's a note to Cook from someone outside the company. He's making a point that our discovery is not as good as it should be, that we should improve it. It's dated June 8th, 2015. Discoverability here being that, okay, there's a jillion games or applications that go up on the app store at any given time. It's easily lost. You can't sell anything because they just go into this flood of games and applications. What are you going to do to help filters and that kind of thing? Cook forwarded the email on June 9th to other executives, and he said, we were already working on a series of things before then to fix the issue. This will come back, so put a pin in this one. 
Has Apple made other investments? Well, there's a filing about the level of R&D spending in Apple's finances. In 2018, Apple invested $14.2 billion in research and development, $16.2 billion in 2019, and that's a 14% change. Research and development was $18.8 billion in 2020. Apple's expert witness discussed these numbers yesterday in our earlier video. You saw us discussing them as well. Does this research and development benefit the App Store? Yes, of course. Did Apple allocate a number? We don't allocate like that. And this was a big part of Schiller's testimony too. It was a big part of really all of the Apple experts' testimony that they don't look at the company in separate divisions for purposes of allocating costs and things. They just put all the research and development in a bucket and they get a feel for how these various things are doing. Now, you don't have to believe that. Epic has essentially poured some cold water on that. You couldn't possibly not know what the App Store is making generally, right, CEO Cook? Now Cook is talking about commissions, says about 85% of apps on the App Store are free. Others pay either 15% or 30%, depending on a few different discount programs Apple uses, notably the small business program, which we will see come up again. This particular tweet, this discussion point from Cook, we will see come up again in a significant fashion towards the end of this video, where he says, yes, you could potentially get 15%, and also that 85% of the apps don't charge anything are completely free to access. We'll get to that, I promise you. The program was in the works for years, but only happened in 2020. That's the small business program. Why? I was very worried about COVID and the effects of COVID on small businesses in particular, Cook says. Was litigation an issue? That was in the back of my mind, but it wasn't the primary cause. For all the world, when this happened after Epic had sued them, it looked like it was a response to what Epic was saying about overly high prices and overly high commissions being charged uh, by the App Store. I would be willing to guess that it's kind of a mix, a stew of all these reasons, but that when they say, I was aware of the litigation, when another Apple executive says, oh, certainly that helped the process along, it was a part of moving things across the finish line. There are a lot of plans and a lot of strategies in various modes of work behind the scenes at all of these large corporations, and certain things push them across the finish line and certain things don't. It certainly appears that the epic litigation was the last straw that got this program up and running. And for those folks that benefit from it, I think probably a thank you to Epic is in order regardless of whether or not they win this case. So I think that's right. We'll see how the judge thinks about it later on. How have prices consumers paid for software changed? They've definitely gone down significantly, says Cook, from the days of buying a shrink-wrapped package from the local retailer. You don't have to pay for packaging for one thing, and for another, there's much more competition among developers. Now, this is interesting, right? There's another bit of testimony here that I don't know whether I highlight or not, where Tim Cook admits he's not a gamer. He's not really investing in this industry or in this community, and that's totally fine. You don't need to be a gamer to run a company like Apple. But these particular quotes, I would argue, are wrong. They're not false. He's not lying to the court. It's what he thinks. Uh, but what he says here is that the prices for consumers have gone down. And I think more appropriately, the notion is that the prices for developers, or maybe more specifically publishers, has gone down. When he says you don't have to pay for packaging for one thing, that's undoubtedly true. There's a lot of games, certainly on iPhones and applications that you don't have to press a CD. You don't have to get a plastic package. You don't have to ship it from a factory, build, making it somewhere in the world and put it on boats and move it around. You don't have to pay for all of that. And yet, one of the things that I know gets gamers up in arms and makes them at least a little bit irate if they think about it too hard is when the big transition from physical to digital happened, that $60 game that you could have bought at a Best Buy that used the boat and the plastic and the CD and everything else, well, 
chances are it was still $60 on the PlayStation Network or the Nintendo Store or the Xbox Store, wherever you're buying your favorite video games. And that, I think, has been a consistent point of contention for gamers for years now to say, well, the developers and the publishers just kind of captured that money. We should have shared in that split somehow. So Mr. Cook here is saying that, that it benefited consumers. How have prices consumers paid for software change? Yes, we no longer pay $90 for Star Fox uh, on the N64 or what have you. But the $60 price point, now the $70 price point, didn't change to reflect the fact that there aren't boats and plastic and things like that. In fact, we used to have big long manuals in our console video games. And I miss those personally as a brief aside during this important video. Uh, and I wish that they were back and they don't have to make them. They don't have to pay for a writer. They don't have to print them to get them out to us. And so this is one of those where I think even Mr. Cook is kind of alighting the differences in the market in a way that doesn't necessarily harm his case, but also doesn't accurately reflect the reality of the situation. Now to in-app purchases. Is the 15 slash 30% take a payment processing fee? No, Cook says, of course not. In-app payment helps Apple collect a commission and the commission is for a number of things, the payment processing, but also developer support, APIs, et cetera. What we saw talked about throughout this court case, which is you pay for the research and development, you pay for the design of the phone, you pay for the conferences, you pay for the APIs, you pay for the engineering support, you pay for all of these various things and that is baked into this single payment, plus $99, to get on the store that makes all of this possible. And that's the business model that Apple chose and the one that is at a high level of contention in this case. If not for IAP, we would have to come up with another system to invoice developers, which I think would be a mess, Cook says. Now that assumes its premise, which we will see is important as we get towards the tail end of this video. It assumes that Apple should be entitled to 30% of most particularly purchases made in an application after the application has already been downloaded or made available to the consumer. And most specifically for purposes of this question, this conversation in Epic versus Apple, the sale of V-Bucks, because Fortnite's free to play. And I do think there are business questions that we will get to when we get to the big, big ticket items as part of this video, but that Mr. Cook here is assuming that ultimately his side is going to win this fight, that I'm entitled to some money on all of these transactions. And if I can't get it, taking it off the top in things like in-app payment processing, then we've got all sorts of additional problems. I have to take upfront fees. I have to do direct things. I have to put audit rights in all my developer agreements. I have to pay for people to go and make sure that people aren't stealing. What is my legal cut as determined by the court? And that creates a whole big problem. Why can't apps direct users to deals on their websites? It would be akin to Apple down at Best Buy saying, Best Buy, put in a sign there where we are advertising that you can go across the street and get an iPhone, says Cook. And I had to highlight this quote. It's exactly what we've said in virtual legality. I had to tweet it out myself. It says, until I hear otherwise, now I'm just going to assume Tim Cook watches virtual legality. Now, to be fair, this is by far the easiest way of describing what's happening here. And you don't have to actually agree with this metaphor to believe that. But it was very, very amusing for me to see it described so closely to how I've been describing it now for the better part of nine months, maybe even 10 months at this point in time. So I thought it was in fact amusing. We're now going through some third-party numbers about whether people are changing between phone ecosystems. Lawyer asks if Apple is doing anything to stop people from switching. No, we're making efforts to get Android people to switch. Cook jokes. Cook brings up the data transfer project that makes switching between platforms easier. Judge asks if there are documents about this. Lawyer says she'd be happy to direct judge to public resources, but the judge says it's got to be in the record if I'm going to consider it. And apparently 
isn't, that there's some data sharing going around to potentially help remove some of the friction in changing ecosystems. Apple lawyer then asks Cook to define stickiness, which has shown up in some Apple emails and is really one of the foundational planks of what Epic came with in their opening statement and throughout the primary portion of their presentation of the case, that Apple had a plan to lock in users, to lock in developers, to create stickiness. And they read it as encouraging friction to prevent people that would otherwise leave to stay so that they can charge exorbitant above market prices. What does Mr. Cook say? Cook says to be sticky is to have such high consumer satisfaction that people don't want to leave. And we've seen this before. This is exactly what Apple has said before, that when they mean sticky, when they say it in there, we're talking about just having the best darn products and services you've ever seen. What about references to locking customers into devices? Well, it means making all the products work so well together, people don't want to leave, Cook says. Is there anything Apple could do to lock people into iOS? Not that I'm aware of. Suppose there could be technical things you could do to take people's information and lock it down and that kind of stuff. Uh, There is no indication that they're doing that here, but it is interesting, right? And this is ultimately a notion of credibility, of reading those emails and saying, what does Apple mean by that? Uh, And certainly Apple's behavior is a part of that story. Their behavior, both in acting, what Epic, I think, has accurately described in certain respects as arbitrary in their enforcement of the app review rules can go against Apple. Uh, And the counterpoint, what can go for Apple is the fact that they haven't raised those prices. They haven't acted in what we would see as a traditional evil monopolist, taking control of a dominant market position and then raising the prices and doing other bad things and otherwise just being a bull in a China shop and getting rid of everything that they don't like in that marketplace. So ultimately, I think Apple's probably got a slightly stronger argument here to suggest that Yes, they use this terminology, but what they mean is making sure people want to stay, not that they're forced to stay, uh, but ultimately it's going to be up to the judge to make that determination for herself. Now we're asking specifically about iMessage being difficult to leave. Is iMessage one of the highly ranked features of the iPhone? I would say it's a really good feature, but he doesn't think the lack of it prevents people from going to Android. And there's a whole kind of fight about iMessage that was apparently going to go to Android and that got canceled and all this other stuff of people that really don't want to leave their iMessage stuff on their iPhone. And so don't leave iPhone to go to Android or to some other platform. But I want to break down this answer because I think it also makes clear why Epic has such a tough fight here. So this is direct. This isn't Epic cross-examination. So these are softballs. These are intended to be read this way. But Mr. Cook here says something that I think is very astute. Is iMessage one of the highly ranked features on the iPhone? Yes, it's a good feature. But he doesn't think the lack of it prevents people from going to Android. If you break this down, if you change this to companies that you like, is smart delivery a good feature on the Xbox? Yes, it is. I would say it's a really good feature. But Does the lack of smart delivery on the PlayStation prevent people from going to Xbox to PlayStation? Perhaps it does insofar as it's an attractive feature of the Xbox, which is what we want these companies to be doing is making their boxes more and more attractive, but it doesn't lock people in. iMessage has a different feature set. And so Epic will hit on that a little bit that says, well, you can get your messages trapped in a way that could potentially be harmful to users deciding to switch ecosystems. But at the end of the day, this is a great illustration of what the foundational kind of disconnect here is, which is Apple saying, we made this super awesome thing. Yes, Android doesn't have it. Yes, we want to deny them that. 
Yes, we want to keep iMessage slash Starfield only on our system. Yes, we think that means more people will come over and fewer people will leave. None of that is illegal. In fact, a lot of that looks exactly like what the competition laws would describe as fierce competition. And so it becomes an interesting talking point and one that we will see reflected on further as we continue. Reviewing Apple's financials, Cook says it had a 20.9% profit margin in 2020. Like other Apple witnesses, he says there's no division by division number. Does Cook believe the App Store is profitable? Yes, I do. I would hope so. Has Apple calculated by how much? We haven't done that, but I have a feel, if you will. So again, sticking to their position that they don't have an exact number for any given division, but they know overall whether things are getting better or getting worse. Now we're going to turn to Epic's requests for relief starting with allowing sideloading and third-party stores. I think it would be terrible for the user, says Cook, because if you look at it today, we review 100,000 apps a week and reject 40,000 for different reasons. Ms. Robertson here says review, but later on in the testimony, it's clear that he means to imply that 40,000 are rejected, not just reviewed. That's the 100,000 number you see up here. And he will refer to it in his testimony about how those developers that get rejected aren't terribly thrilled with getting rejected. And... Sometimes Apple certainly looks like they're acting arbitrarily. That's what Epic has harped on in a number of places. But we can also agree that if you get rejected by Apple, even if it were entirely within the rules that they put forward, some people are going to take that the wrong way. You only have to be on the internet for five minutes or even in a virtual legality comment section to know that just reading a sentence that is clear as a bell that somebody violates can still create a big fight over whether that's okay or not. Hey, take Epic. Epic undoubtedly breached their contract. They just said that they were justified to do it for liberty reasons. And a lot of people say, yeah, absolutely, go fight that fight. And so it's very interesting to see Apple say, yeah, we reject 40,000. That makes some people hate us. Without Apple's review, says Cook, the store would be a toxic mess and it would be bad for developers because the developer depends on the store being a safe and trusted place where customers want to come. Well, what about letting developers just use their own in-app payment systems, which is the other major item that Epic has asked for? It would wind up where customers would then have to fill in their credit cards for all of these different apps. So it would be a huge convenience issue, but also the fraud issues would go up. Also, we would have to come up with an alternate way of collecting our commission, Cook says. We would then have to figure out how to track what's going on and invoice it and then chase the developers. It seems like a process that doesn't need to exist. That's exactly what I said, which is that you, when you flip this around where the other side is keeping the cash, the way these contracts generally look in all commercial transactions that I've ever worked on is that the side that doesn't get to take the cash gets an audit right. They go and they say, okay, well, if we have to go check as to what you made, then we get our cut. And if there's a problem with that, other bad things happen and everybody's spending a little bit more money. And Apple says, this is the best way to handle this. And the developers that aren't currently suing them in federal court have agreed to it and said, yep, okay, that's fine with us. But as you'll probably note, it comes back to the foundational question that we talked about earlier, which is, is Apple owed that commission, especially on the in-app payment processing level? These answers assume that they are, and there'll be some question about that by the time we get to the end. Now, with just direct testimony, have we seen any serious stuff Doc Brown style? No, not quite yet, but we're getting there. We're getting there. Let's press on. Gary Bornstein of Epic is stepping up for cross-examination, and we're going back to that email about how Apple should improve discovery. Epic says search ads were announced around that time, so the big improvement project was just another way for Apple to make money for discovery. Cook says he thinks they also announced the Today tab at the time. 
Epic's lawyer, together with search ads that require developers to pay to have their own apps appear at the top of those search results, lightly paraphrased. So they're hitting on Apple and a lot of business things that Apple does that a lot of people don't like, which is totally fair, warranted, exactly what you'd expect Epic to do. And Apple doesn't have a really good defensive volley for these kinds of things. Mr. Cook doesn't. One, because he's not on the kind of operational day-to-day questioning side of these various things, but also because there isn't a great answer. Apple's ultimate answer to a lot of these questions is it's our product and we get to set the terms of engagement, which for the most part is going to win you the lion's share of court cases in America on antitrust concerns for the history of the Sherman Antitrust Act. Might not win you this one and it might not win you ones in the future as antitrust continues to be evaluated against the technology giants now and into the future. So it'll be an open question to see what happens there. Does Apple compete against Google in operating systems? We compete against Samsung and LG, Cook says. Asked to clarify, he says customers don't buy operating systems, they buy devices. Epic's lawyer calls up video where Cook does say it competes with Google. And it's unclear exactly what the effect of this is, other than as a gotcha for Mr. Cook, which is never a bad thing if you're on Epic's side. But ultimately, Apple competes with both. We've talked about it. It's multiple markets. The one thing that's worth noting here is that Mr. Cook is probably answering the question in the first respect by saying we don't sell iOS. There is no market for iOS. So it's not competing on an operating system basis, unlike Microsoft, who sells Windows against other operating systems. We don't sell iOS. Google puts Android out into the marketplace, into the operating system market, and then sells it to other hardware manufacturers. We don't do that. So we're competing in a different way. Yes, as it turns out, we're competing against Google, not only because they make Android, but also because they make Android devices, or at least they did. Uh, I don't have an Android, so you can let me know whether I'm mistaken about the fact that they don't any longer, I don't think, or that they make fewer than they used to. Can we at least agree that you know the revenue for the App Store, lawyer asks. Cook agrees. Lawyer mentions that another Apple exec was asked about revenue at a congressional hearing, and we're going to play that tape from here, etc., etc. And then we get to a fiscal year services document. This document is said to contain different operating margin estimates. The App Store is listed. Document was prepared for a meeting Cook was in. Cook said that these estimates didn't represent fully burdened costs for the App Store, accounting for investment, etc., the capital expense, the research and development, which is what Apple's using to say that these numbers that have been tried to establish from the Epic side of things weren't actually fully established correctly. Epic lawyer contends that its expert Barnes accounted for issues that Cook raised earlier, i.e. high profit estimates, are accurate. Lawyer says that the method Barnes used is also used in this presentation, listed as method two, and says it shows Apple had at least two methods it considered accurate ways to allocate expenses around the App Store. As we talked about when we were going over Barnes's testimony, Generally accepted accounting principles are just that, principles. So there are different ways to look at exactly the same information. And Apple decided on one way and decided on not using a different way. That doesn't mean that it's some kind of smoking gun against Apple, but they're trying to establish that their guy saying that they have 70 or 80 or 90% markets means that they are a monopolist that is taking advantage of their dominant market position. Lawyer asks if Cook can separate out What percentage of App Store revenues come from the iOS and Mac app stores? The iOS would be larger, a lot larger, Cook says. He can't say more, but they'll discuss it in the sealed session. Apparently, there's a sealed session where there's confidential materials explored. Unfortunately, we don't have access to that. But that just kind of continues having an accounting fight. And the sides don't really agree. That will, again, be the kind of thing that the court will look at and try to determine what is most accurate. It's also worth noting that a high margin, a big market, 
for a company or even a division of a company or a product or service specific to that company doesn't necessarily mean that it's illegal monopoly behavior, but it can be suggestive of it. So that will be important on the kind of circumstantial evidence basis that Epic is trying to establish that Apple's 30% is way out of bounds and should be lowered on that premise, if not others. Lawyer asks, Apple doesn't want to make its customers leave the app to make a purchase if it's possible for them to make it within the app, right? Well, Cook says it's about the customer. They then bicker their way into agreeing that in-app payments are a better user experience. They are at least one or two button presses less than going out to the web and having to figure out what exactly King and Activision or anybody else did to get their currencies out to you. It is undoubtedly easier to go into the app to just buy your V-Bucks and that's what Epic is fighting for. They want to be able to have that button there that says the money comes straight to us and we don't have to pay you. IAPs are a very substantial portion of app store purchases, right? It would be the dominant way of purchasing, Cook says. The dominant source of revenue too? I think so. And it's not easy to buy online through a browser, is it? Well, it takes another click to leave the app for the web, but people do it, Cook says. Lawyer says it's valuable to minimize friction. Lawyer notes that Google pays lots of money to get the default search status on iPhones, for instance. A government antitrust complaint has alleged $10 billion. I don't remember the exact number, Cook says of that. Then there's articles about that. And that's kind of the nudge principle, right? That there are ways of structuring software and all sorts of other things in our lives that make it more valuable to be the default of something. That you see analysis of this in even video games where you've got it if the cursor is highlighting maybe the male or female version of a given starting character that these video game companies have looked at what effect that has on putting the cursor in one place or the other as to what people decide to do or putting that character on the cover or not. And so this is an important conversation, but again, we're sitting here saying Apple isn't actually responsible for making friction zero. And the developers and publishers themselves have a certain obligation to say, hey, if they come to our browser and we want to sell them V-Bucks or whatever the V-Bucks equivalent is, we're going to make it as easy as possible for folks sitting there on the iPhone to do so. And it doesn't look, at least as presented in court, that a number of these developers or publishers have done that, which is an interesting part of the story itself. Switching topics, we're going to Apple's banning Fortnite and its attempt to ban all Epic access. Now, this is a bit like a season finale of our big long playlist and antitrust Epic because we've talked about really everything here. According to Leah Nyland, Cook confirms that he reviewed the decision Apple made to terminate developer account for Epic Games, and he agreed with it. He believes Epic's actions were malicious. Apple told the court its only viable option was cutting off Epic access, but it offered to let Fortnite back on. Why would it do that if Epic's a bad actor? Epic's lawyer asks. I think it would be to the benefit of users to help them back on the store if they abided by the rules. Cook says of Fortnite slash Epic, the user is caught in between these two companies here, and it's not the right thing to do to the user. Free Fortnite, says Tim Cook. And it's very funny to look at it that way, but it's the truth. Apple basically immediately said, hey, if you stop your breach, we'll even escrow the money that comes into Fortnite to get Fortnite back on iPhones and iPads, and Epic was the one that shook them off and said, absolutely not. But Epic's lawyers have a continued point on this by saying, isn't it the case that by electing to attempt to ban the entire Unreal Engine account, you were retaliating against Epic? And why would you do that if Epic, if Apple or Epic or Apple or Epic didn't have a serious problem with Fortnite coming back? Judge denied this request, by the way. And 
This line of questioning is pretty interesting because you've got them trying to paint Apple as essentially just a greedy hardware company. And the one thing that I think gets lost in all of this is that Apple says essentially that we wanted to have Fortnite back. We wanted to support the users, the gamers that were playing Fortnite. And at the end of the day, what happened is that Epic refused to not break our rules. We would have been happy to have them come back. The question that the Epic lawyer poses is why would you want them back if they're a bad actor? Presumably if they say, oh, we're sorry, we didn't mean to break the rules and we'll put it back in place while we sort this out in federal court, they are no longer a bad actor. Instead, they doubled down and they put Tim Cook up in a 1984 video, which is on the thumbnail, and they became more and more of a bad actor. As these things go, the situation changes. So as Epic did that, as Epic refused Apple's overtures, they said, okay, fine, we're getting rid of all the accounts because they're all connected. And so I think Epic's case here isn't great. Epic uh, or Apple was pretty justified in going forward with what they were doing. Maybe not on the Unreal Engine side. They obviously lost this part of the preliminary injunction, primarily because the public interest was seen to be too strong uh, during this fight. uh, And the judge said that they weren't allowed to do this. But Apple saying, look, if Epic would have fixed it, we would have brought them back on. Well, why would you do that if they're so bad? Isn't really a great argument. Do users like the app review process? They like the output of it, which is safer, more secure, and more privacy. Epic's lawyer says Apple has 1.8 million apps, so it couldn't possibly be curated, a term Apple has linked with the store. Lawyer then reads the dictionary definition of curated. I take no pleasure in reporting this, says Ms. Robertson. And there's a fight about whether something is curated or not. The app store is curated in maybe the lightest hand possible, and I think that's what they're fighting about. But certainly, it is curated if there's an app review that rejects apps. That's a curation process. And it's really not worth fighting about in any respect. So again, quick Emmett Brown check. Are we seeing any serious stuff yet? Not quite. Almost there though. Lawyer asks if people pay Apple to make decisions for them. Cook says he wouldn't phrase it that way, but that when people buy an iOS device, they're paying to have certain decisions pre-made to make things simple. Well, the lawyer says if people really value Apple's curation and Apple's app store, even if there are multiple stores, People could still go shop at Apple, right? It seems like a decision that they shouldn't have to make, Cook says. And this is the fundamentals of this case, right? This is reasonable minds can differ, but what does the law require? Apple says we should be allowed to make a product that we want. People have indicated that they want this product out there in the marketplace. Epic says, no, you shouldn't be allowed to make it that way. And you should have to have app stores and other payment processors. And as I've said since the start of this playlist, I don't read the antitrust laws. The antitrust laws have not historically been read to suggest that Epic's theory of the case is correct on this score, but precedents change. And Epic is saying a very important point here that says, look, if we get into this, people have bought your phone. Why shouldn't they be allowed to choose the store that they want to shop at? And will that work with the judge? It's hard to say. Lawyer says if people really value Apple's curation, we already talked about that particular point, Cook says when they buy an iPhone today, they buy something that just works. I think they buy into a total ecosystem when they buy an iPhone. It's long been Apple's position. Will people not be able to distinguish between an official and unofficial store? Well, they've never had to do it before. They've bought into something that's an ecosystem that just works. So you don't know if people can tell this difference. I'm saying I don't know. And again, fundamentally, is Apple allowed to create a product that they want to sell on a it just works basis? Epic says no. There are just a few developers who don't like the current system, Cook says. Lawyer asks if he'd been surprised to learn no developers are here testifying for Apple. Well, I don't see that there would be a natural way to include them, Cook says. 
And I actually think as specious as that sounds from Tim Cook and Apple, it makes some amount of sense to the lawyer in me. Epic bringing up developers to complain about things doesn't actually move the needle from my perspective. It is very, very easy to find people that would prefer not to pay 30%. And if they paid 20%, they'd have a lot more money and they'd be a lot happier if they otherwise got the exact same access they got for 30%. No question. Just like you like to see sales on the PlayStation Store or at the Best Buy, developers like to see sales on what they're putting into an Apple ecosystem. Apple having a developer saying, we're just fine with it. Everything's dandy doesn't really make a lot of use of either Apple's resources or the court's time. So it might be nice to have a developer to counter some of the things that Epic brought up, but I don't actually see it as terribly pertinent to the overall legal situation. Moving to privacy now. Is Apple's stance on privacy a differentiator? I think we care more than others do, Cook says. I think there's some people that really want that and therefore buy an iPhone because of it. Apple doesn't have a unique ability to safeguard privacy, does it? The lawyer asks. Of course it does, says Cook. And I think Cook probably has the right of it if the court believes all the rest of the documentation that has been presented on malware, on the usefulness of a walled garden in at least certain respects, on the fact that app review is at least a marginal shield of certain things. Apple does have a unique ability, does spend money, does design their actual product in a way that is different. And you had Epic's own cross-examination yesterday talking about the fact that Android allowing external devices and doing other things makes them more susceptible to malware. And Apple could say, yeah, we designed a different product. We have a unique ability to safeguard privacy. I think Apple probably can win that one pretty easily. Epic asks if other stores might collect data. I think we generally collect the minimum amount that we can, Cook says. Epic says someone could offer a store that collects even less and users might prefer it. Cook says it seems very hypothetical. Now we're noting that Apple has data managed in China, partly by a state-owned enterprise. And China is generally Apple's privacy Achilles heel. This New York Times piece from earlier in the week. And I have to say, I think this is an effective line of attack. I do think, however, that China is an Achilles heel for a lot of companies, a lot of software companies, a lot of tech companies, because to operate in that market, these companies have to make the decision about whether or not they want to actually abide by some pretty Dacronian rules and some pretty authoritarian rule sets in order to gain access to those eyeballs and those audiences. And if you want to come into my comments and say Apple is evil or wrong to do this for that purpose, I'm really not going to fight too terribly hard against you. Epic, however, hits it pretty hard. When Apple shares user data and takes down apps, that's a situation where its commitment to privacy and its financial interests are at odds, right? Light paraphrase, we have to comply with the laws and the restrictions in each of the countries we operate in, Cook says. Lawyer says Apple could have chosen not to comply. You have to comply with the laws in the jurisdictions you operate in, repeats Cook. It's in the best interests of the people there that Apple operate in China. And here I think the lawyer probably missed an attack point, and that's happens. Lawyers are human beings, and you don't have to agree with my strategy, certainly, if you're actually running this litigation. But I think the proper answer to it, we have to comply with these laws, is not you could have chosen not to comply. It's to dig deeper into, you didn't have to sell your iPhone into China. You didn't have to have those contact points with a regime like that, with those laws. And once you do, well, the barrel of apples is in at least some respects poisoned already. So you've got to comply with those once you've decided to do business with that regime. But you didn't have to decide to do that in the first place. And I think Cook gives a partial answer to that question that wasn't asked, presumably because he was prepared to answer that particular question by saying it's in the best interest of the people there, trying to position the, the fact that Apple can't do what it wants to do in terms of freedom and liberty in the American way and everything he said at the top of this video in China 
but he would if he could, and that not having Apple and iPhones and iPads and everything in that market is a net negative for those consumers. And I think philosophically, I think historically, I think a whole lot of really intelligent people can have a very, very long discussion about whether or not it is better to try to get into that market and get those people those products and abide by those rules on the hope that things get better or to deny a market those things on the hope that that pushes for the change from the other direction. I don't know the answer to that question. I am not well-versed in Chinese authoritarian regime, legal pressures or international relations in that respect. But certainly, I think if I were on Epic's side, I would have pushed that a little bit more. Of course, you're probably already thinking in the back of your head, this is a weird line of attack for Epic Games of all companies in any event, right? We're going to a Sweeney email that warns of a peril that lockdown phone ecosystems pose because they can act as an extension of a surveillance censorship regime. Apparently, Epic declined to pursue a Vietnam license for Fortnite out of principles about privacy. And as Ms. Robertson rightly points out, I know you were waiting for this, it's maybe worth noting that Chinese tech megacorp with state ties, Tencent, owns a 40% stake in Epic. Now, to be fair, Epic's raised money since they got that 40%, so it's probably high 30s, but they do definitely own a very large percentage of Epic and undoubtedly help drive some of Epic's decision-making. So it's interesting to come out with a line of attack that says, you kowtowed to China, didn't you, Apple? Probably pretty fair, but you got to be worried about those stones being thrown out of those glass houses. Epic now going to Cook's congressional testimony, saying Apple's never increased the commission rate in the store. But Apple has expanded the scope of transactions to which the commission applies, right? Cook says yes, if that means they've added new product features. They added subscriptions, they added various other things that the apps are allowed to charge for, and they continue to take their 30%. We're again in kind of reasonable minds can differ territory. I don't personally view that as an expansion of the commission rate, certainly, or of the commission pool, realistically. As they add new features, they get their 30% cut. That's not really something that is all that controversial to me. But you start to get into the reason why they asked the question, which is that this fight we saw being discussed yesterday. We're looking at some apps that allegedly let people buy in-app purchases before Apple allowed it. This was a big point of contention yesterday. Epic thought these existed. Schiller said they didn't earlier this week. Cook is saying he's not sure if these apps made it through review, but it appears there was an app that had in-app purchases, and Apple wanted it to be switched out to a link that would run through Safari, i.e. a thing currently developers can't do. In fact, they're prohibited from doing. Epic is reserving some time for sealed session questioning, and then we'll get back to Apple direct or redirect testimony. But this is an important point, I think. Epic continues to try to hit on this notion that there was a point in time before in-app payments were effectively even built that certain app developers were having the equivalent of microtransactions and currencies or whatever it might be. And Apple didn't have their processor ready, didn't have this kind of functionality ready. And so they were saying, oh, well, in order to handle this, go do it on your web browser. And you can tell people in the app to go do it on your web browser because that makes sense. And that they came up with the rule as part of getting in-app payment processing up and running. Now, I do think that factually that's an important distinction to make. So I hope that Epic and Apple can figure out what that properly should be and present it to the court and the court can make the decision on that. I don't think, however, that Epic's kind of consequence of that, that since this happened when in-app payment processing became mandated by Apple, the prices went up is at all evidence by what we have heard from Epic 
as of yet. We don't have any indication that without that 30%, those prices would be down. I think we have seen in testimony, even right now, that if you go out to the web browser, in most instances, you're paying the same price as you would through the in-app payment processing, that you're not seeing that benefit to consumers and end users. You certainly didn't see it with respect to things like exclusives being bought off of Steam and moved over to the Epic Game Store, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that probably isn't a long form winner for Epic, but if they can show that there was this process and that Apple was effectively testifying to it wrong and not lying necessarily, but just misunderstanding what the question was or what was happening, that that's useful to establishing that there is a certain problem with Apple's testimony. And also that if they could find other documentation or information that suggested that certain prices went up when they had to pass along that 30%, that could be useful. Now, the one thing I don't like about this is that There was a fairly lengthy discovery process. It was certainly expedited, so it was very fast on the request of both parties. But this kind of thing should have been shown out by Epic documentation if they had it as part of this process. Apple was right to argue against it yesterday. The question is if the actual facts bear out what Epic wants them to. That's more important than just the process of discovery and what's happening in the court system itself. As we said, Epic is reserving time for sealed session. So we get back to Apple's redirect. This is what we've called for the last couple of days, rehabilitation. You try to respond to what Epic poked holes in. When the search ad feature was offered, lawyer asks, were there other features also added? Cook says the Today tab, which featured apps, was added. Also, they changed the recommendation engine. So there were other things that were done. It wasn't just selling things up on our search bar. Now we're looking at some of the earlier presentations that Epic's lawyer brought up with alleged profit numbers. Apple's lawyer notes that there were only a couple of these meetings starting in 2019, and Cook says he knows better than Epic's witness what was in the numbers. Lawyer brings up Cook's earlier statement that Epic's actions were malicious. Does he still think that? I do. So why did they invite Epic back? Because we thought it would be the right thing for the user. Repeating, repeating, repeating. And... Cook says that there was some language recently added to the developer license agreement that was a requirement in Japanese law. And he isn't specific. He doesn't know exactly what that is. He thinks it might be related to termination. I've talked about Japanese law and requirements in the past. I've brought up one of these, which is what we saw in the Nintendo license documents, which was a surprise to some people, which is that there are certain benefits in Japan to saying that another contractor of yours doesn't affiliate with the Yakuza, that Japan is very concerned about that. So you can have a provision in there that says you have to represent and warrant to us that you are not related to the Yakuza, that you don't have people in your company that relate in that fashion. Could be something like that with respect to Apple. All speculation, we don't know. Tim Cook doesn't know. He's just trying to establish that they do change things to comply with laws all over the place. It's not just China. Now talking about the emails about app SciScape, which allegedly offered in-app purchases before it was allowed, lawyer notes language saying Apple is working with it to make it compliant with Apple's terms and conditions, which at that point wasn't ready. And we've seen this. We've actually seen this before with respect to subscription services, where Apple was trying to deal with how these various app developers could get money for their subscription services before their technical functionality had a way to make sure that they got their commission from them. So the other way of looking at this, if you just love Apple and you want to side with them on this point, is them saying, well, we're not going to take our 30% until we actually have the technological features that we want to give to you to actually facilitate this for you and your users. So just kick them off to your browser until we get the thing built. You don't owe us that 30%. We're not going to come after you for it. You don't have to get an audit or anything like that. When we get the functionality up, you're going to use this way. Certainly that was the case for subscriptions. In the really early days of the App Store, before in-app payment processing apparently was even working fully, it looks like it was the same thing But now Epic is presenting that as a bad thing from Apple's side. 
And it might be. Again, you have to kind of show that prices were changed on that. And it's an interesting kind of counterpoint. The other kind of factor in that, of course, is that the market share that Apple didn't have of the phone market at the time, so that the operating system market was suggested by Epic's own expert as not being monopolistic, no matter what they did in, per, in respect of these kinds of terms at 2009 and 2010 levels. So you've got a lot of competing kind of theories and expert testimony on this, but it does depend on how you want to characterize what's happening here. Now talking about whether developers like Apple, the lawyer is trying to bring up an article that was published while Tim Cook was on the stand, but the judge won't allow it. Apparently there was an article that went up that talked about somebody being okay with the 30% commission in the store. Yep, judge isn't going to allow an article that's published while she's sitting there. That's really not been properly vetted at all by the, the litigation process. Epic's cross-examination then goes back to the Skyscape emails or Skyscape. Cook is saying he doesn't know what's going on here. And in fairness, Epic is bringing this up because they weren't allowed to call another witness separately to talk about it. And we saw exactly why that was yesterday. I think that was probably the right call from the judge, but certainly it has uh, held Epic back from figuring out exactly what is happening with respect to these particular tokens. Now, in my opinion, you've waited long enough. I promised you, you say to yourself in the back of your head, Rick promised there was going to be some serious stuff in this video. And here it is. Because in Epic's cross-examination, a strange thing happens. We've switched over to Leah Nyland, who does a great job, just like Addie Robertson, in helping us get through all of this testimony. We see that YGR, that's the judge, starts asking Cook questions. This is cross-examination by the judge herself. This isn't an interjection. This is a long-form discussion slash debate on important topics. Now, before we dive into the substance here, you are going to see what appear to be very, very pro-epic kind of statements. If you recall, when we were talking about the first week, when people asked me, whether it was Games Industry Biz or in the comments to these videos, where do you see this thing going? I said, well, the judge is interjecting to question Epic's theory of the case, but that's not unexpected because Epic is presenting their theory of the case then. So if you go back to those videos, you go back to those articles, you will see a number of places where the judge says, I don't know, Epic, and asks and pushes and prods what Epic's theory of the case is. This is that on Apple's side. Does that mean the judge is fully on whatever she's asking here? It could. But I would caution everybody from reading the tea leaves here. There is a certain aspect of this that is a little bit of devil's advocacy. She asked Epic some hard questions to try to get clarification on some important points. And she asks Tim Cook some hard questions to try to get clarification of some important points. But I will admit that there are a lot of these questions that would tend to suggest that if she is actually of the opinion that she is presenting as in these questions, that Apple probably has significantly more to worry about after this questioning than they did when they woke up this morning. So with that as background and with enough Emmett Brown pictures to choke a horse from Back to the Future 3, let's take a look at what she asks. First, she starts out light. Judge asks about how Cook remembered the something related to Japan. He says he recalled that something happened in Japan that meant they needed to change the termination clause. No big deal. In your testimony, you said you want to focus on users. I've seen some evidence that a significant portion of revenues coming from gamers, Judge says. The majority of the revenue on the App Store comes from games, Cook admits. The other thing you said is you want to give users control. That's right, of their data, Cook says. So what is the problem with allowing users to have choice and a cheaper option for content? Well, they have a choice today between many different Android phones and iPhones, Cook says. Judge, 
if they want to go and get a cheaper battle pass or V-Bucks, what is the problem with Apple giving them that option? It's information that they can go and have a different option for making purchases. Well, if we allowed people to link out like that, we would give up our monetization of our IP, our intellectual property, that research and development spend. You could monetize a different way, the judge says. The gaming industry is almost subsidizing everybody else. And subsidy is exactly the word, if you recall, we used in this space, that the Fortnites of the world are undoubtedly subsidizing all those free apps. Now, Apple's going to fight against that characterization, but at a very real level, that is what's happening. Doesn't mean that it's wrong. Doesn't mean that it's illegal. It is effectively what everybody agreed to. If we charge for our app, we're going to pay you 30%. That means if we make a lot of money through our app, we are helping to make your ecosystem possible for those that don't make a lot of money off their app. That is to be expected, but it is a fair description of reality. The way I look at that is by having such a large number of apps free, it increases the traffic to the app store. They have a much larger audience than if there weren't free apps there, Cook says. And again, kind of an expected defense. Well, that's the customer base and not the IP then, Judge says. It's both, presumably, Mr. Cook says. We have 150,000 APIs to maintain and the customer service for all these transactions, Cook says. And again, we start to see how the judge is challenging Mr. Cook and Apple here by saying, well, games are subsidizing all of this. Is this fair to game developers? We are talking about game developers today. So banking apps, judge says, I don't pay for them, but you are charging gamers to subsidize Wells Fargo. Games are an example. They are transacting on our platform, Cook says. The bank is not transacting on the platform. They're providing uh, an application to get you access to their services. It's a choice. There are clearly other options. We think overall this one is the best one, Cook says. It seems to be lucrative and focused on purchases made, frankly, on an impulse basis. That's a different question, not ripe for antitrust law, Judge says. And that's, I think, the impulse question. That's a regulatory type thing. Again, Leon Island's doing a great job here, but kind of gets a little bit muddled with respect to who's talking. It certainly seems to be the judge that says, Impulse basis is not a great thing, but that's not right for this particular case. That's accurate, but still, Apple's under it a little bit now. It does appear to be disproportionate, Judge says. I understand Apple is bringing users to the games, but after that first interaction, Apple is just profiting off of that. Here's your alarm bells. Here's your red flag. Here's whatever else you want to say for Apple. Again, could be devil's advocacy. Don't read too much into judge questions. Honestly, don't. Don't do it, no matter how it sounds. But... This is exactly the kind of thing Epic wants to see. Epic doesn't necessarily need to get its app store on the iPhone if it can get outside of in-app payment processing. Cook says we are creating the entire amount of commerce on the store, and we are doing that by getting the largest audience there. I think competition is great. We have fierce competition. Now, one thing I will say here, and one of the reasons I think this is at least partially devil's advocacy, is that the judge has in the motion stage, as part of this litigation, in other interjections that she has made, understood that one of the issues here is if you get rid of in-app payment processing and you say Apple shouldn't be profiting off of future interactions, you incentivize every developer to have a free-to-play game that has an unlock feature that's by in-app payment processing after it's downloaded, or in the case of something like Fortnite, that only ever makes its money from selling skins and V-Bucks. And so this model, and I think the judge understands this, she has indicated a lot of understanding about some of this stuff in all of those stages that we talked about. This model would say that Epic and Fortnite never has to pay a dime to Apple, right? I understand Apple is bringing users to the game, 
they were bringing them to Fortnite. But after that first interaction, Apple is just profiting off of that. You download Fortnite and then Epic gets to go and say direct payments to Epic. How does Apple ever get money there? And the other aspect of this from a business perspective, and I think the judge knows this as well, is that it's not at all unusual to have a continuing right to get money from something that you have connected. That the notion here would be that Apple is essentially that service that connects an employer with an employee. And you say, okay, I get a certain amount of money for now and for a couple of years, or that connects a service provider with a customer. Okay, I get this now and I also get to participate in your contracts for at least a couple of years. One of the things that has come up is, should this go on forever? Epic tried to frame this as, oh, you're taking patent rights or proprietary rights that have these limitations under the law and you're trying to take them forever. And Apple says, no, 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 that's not the case. You're misframing what it is that we do. But those are all part and parcel of this conversation. The one thing that I don't think that the judge will do, no matter how this sounds, is arrive at a situation where the epics of the world can get access to the Apple APIs and engineering and iOS ecosystem in general and wind up with a $0 charge for all of that completely. Now, could she figure out a way to say, you get on the store and you owe on money for a little bit or the first couple transactions or the first transaction and then you don't owe it anymore Perhaps, but the courts are always reticent to substitute their own judgment for businesses. If I can impart anything on you in the last couple of videos, it is that. The overall stance is, unless you prove your case pretty convincingly on one of these questions, the courts don't like to say 30% is not okay, but 26.5% is. Or in this particular case, you don't have to pay 30%, but you do have to pay for the first three transactions and it can be 15% or figuring out what in the world that looks like. There is a much bigger chance of kind of holistic changes. Uh, yes, you can have a side-loaded app store. Yes, you can have uh, your own in-app payment processing or no to both. And those are much more likely than that we're going to get into the tiny details and we're going to decide what your business looks like, Apple, because that's precedential and we don't like to set those kinds of things in the court system. That being said, this is the kind of thing Epic's wanted to see for about 15 days now. You don't have in-app competition on those in-app purchases though, Judge says. People can buy on other platforms. Only if they know, Judge says. That's up to the developer to communicate, Cook says. And only if they decide to switch how they do things, Judge says. And you can see this fight, right? And this is the fight that we've been seeing the judge interject on, which makes it the most likely thing that she might judge on, which is the anti-steering concept, right? She says, you don't have competition on the store in your ecosystem. Well, people can buy other phones, Cook says. That's usually been a sufficient argument for holistically created technological platforms like an iPhone. Only if they know, Judge says. Don't know exactly what, what that is. People can buy on other platforms, the app, but they could also buy other platforms, period. They could buy different phones. They could buy in their web browser if they're trying to get their V-Bucks, etc. And that's up to the developer to communicate and only if they decide to switch how they do things, says the judge. Again, anti-steering, anti-steering, anti-steering. Then we get to the $1 million small business program. It wasn't really about competition. That seemed to be the result of the investigations, Judge says. I am going to present right now to you, CEO of Apple, that I don't believe your testimony, right? That's what this says. I don't believe you when you say it was COVID and businesses and then the litigation was in the back of your head. That seemed to be the result of the investigations. Cook doubles down. It was because of COVID, but of course I had the lawsuit in the back of my head. Now, I understand Google changed its practices from competition, the judge says, but you didn't change because of competition, did you? It was to help small businesses, Cook says, tripling down. 
So when other stores like Steam reduced their price, you didn't feel the need to reduce that price, Judge says. Cook says he doesn't know anything about Steam. I'm not the CEO of Steam. You'll have to get Gabe in here. But look at what this line of questioning actually posits. And those of you that love Epic and have wanted to see more from the Epic cross-examination team, this is probably what you wanted to see. Because this is a lead up to, hey, you didn't change your price to do anything with competition, right? That's what you just said. You said, oh, you had the lawsuit in the back of your head, but it was really about COVID and small businesses. So you didn't feel any competitive pressure at all. Uh-oh, wait, no, yes, I did. I felt competitive pressure. Wait, I'm trapped, right? That's Apple. And the judge here is doing a good job of exposing this kind of thinking for what it is. I didn't have to change the price when Steam changed the price because I don't view them as competitors. Maybe could be the theory here. I didn't have to change the price even when Google or others changed the price because I was just interested in COVID and small business help. And the judge is trying to establish, well, if that is the case, then maybe you really are isolated, insulated from all the market pressures that the competition laws would like to have imposed upon you. Let's talk about developers, the judge says. She asks him about a survey that found 39% of developers were dissatisfied. How is it that you are feeling motivation or incentive to work for them? Whew. Cook says he doesn't know that survey, but they reject 40,000 apps a week, so there is some friction. Sometimes the developer or the users don't have incentives aligned. Fair enough, but the judge continues, it doesn't seem to me that you have competition or much incentive to work for developers, judge says. I don't recall seeing any other surveys or any other business records showing that you routinely conduct surveys regarding developer satisfaction and move or make changes. My goodness, judge. So let's talk about developers. 39% are dissatisfied with your work. Cook says, well, we have to reject a whole bunch of them. How are we quantifying that? And she says, it doesn't seem to me that you have much incentive to work for developers. Now, in my opinion, the right answer here is that's what a commission is designed to do. We make money when they make money. Let's look at, again, the charts that show how much Apple has increased its developer platform, how much more money developers have made through our ecosystem. But Cook is under fire here. The judge was storing this up for Mr. Tim Cook. And ultimately, if you believe that this is indicative of her position, then the fact that they aren't supporting developers to the extent that the judge would see them supported could be read as, again, circumstantial evidence that they don't have market pressures put upon them and they aren't that interested in making developers happy. Now, we've talked about it in this series. The developer isn't really someone that Apple has to make happy. It's the end user. It's consumer interests that antitrust is most invested in. Developers can make the case that they are a part of the consumers of the Apple ecosystem and they have to some extent. But developers being unhappy, being charged 30%, really not that important. Developers being unhappy with how Apple operates, also not that important. But when you start to combine these things in the way that the judge is doing, they present a story, a picture that the judge has framed here as a company that might well be insulated from the market pressures that are expected to be placed upon it and that something should be done about. So... Serious stuff? I think it was. And that's the end of Tim Cook's testimony. Unfortunately, I have to tell you, there is a little bit of additional testimony and it's just as anticlimactic as big parts of the Back to the Future series itself, but we'll cover it because if we are nothing if not thorough here in our 15 or 16 of Epic versus Apple, just the trial, or as Ms. Robertson says, we're back in court with Aviel Rubin, Apple's security expert. I'm going to be tweeting a little slower here because we're very near the end of testimony. 
In general, Epic's lawyer on cross-examination of this witness is discussing some written testimony about the security of in-app payment methods. Ruben is admitting that he didn't conduct extensive research on whether there are security issues or added friction with non-Apple payments. Totally fine. And then there's a discussion over whether or not this particular expert can make the following statement. Specifically, Epic explored using Apple's enterprise certificates in order to bypass the App Store review process so that Epic could more conveniently distribute its apps and this appeared to be financially motivated as Epic was looking at ways to reduce the 30% cut that Apple takes. And there's a fight over whether this expert can actually make that conclusion. And ultimately, this doesn't matter because the judge is going to make her own interpretations of the Project Liberty slides that say very much this kind of thing. We got to get out of that 30% and evaluate that for what it is. That, folks, is the end of testimony for Epic versus Apple. And if you're anything like me, you saw the judge start railing on Tim Cook and said, wow, things just got pretty feisty pretty quick when Mr. Cook otherwise had fairly milk toast direct examination, not even really controversial cross-examination. It wasn't until the judge started speaking up as if she were prosecuting the case herself for the Department of Justice that things started to look a little bit more problematic for Apple. Now, if you go back and you look at those earlier videos, you will see the judge making statements that actually call into questions huge swaths of Epic's case. So I do think that strategically, this is the kind of thing that this judge likes to do is to poke holes, to really try to crystallize the weaknesses of the various sides cases. Does she believe all this? If she does, then there's a possibility that Apple could lose substantial parts of the case. But remember, there are legal thresholds that have to be passed, even if you think Apple is a bad actor. The first thing that has to happen, which itself would be very, very precedential and very, very important to technology and walled gardens in general, is that this judge would have to find that Apple's control of access to its walled garden environment that it creates, that it designs, is in and of itself a monopoly. Because if it isn't, if it isn't a monopoly in a relevant market for purposes of the law, then most of the rest of the stuff falls away. Most of the rest of the stuff doesn't matter because Apple is allowed to control access. It has these patents. The intellectual property laws say you're allowed to control what distribution looks like, what use looks like, and almost all the other arguments really become angels on the head of a pin. If you first find that Apple is a monopolistic controller of its iOS environment, then the rest of this stuff while important, isn't as important as that threshold question and all hell breaks loose on the PlayStation Store and the Xbox Store and everything else. So we're going to check in on closing arguments next week. We're going to check in on the opinion, certainly when it's made. But as you can see here, the judge is making no promises, no promises for exact dates of the opinion, hopefully before August 13th. Well, that's, that's a few months away. I hope it's before August 13th too. We'll see when the judge gets her opinion out. I guess I'll try to react pretty quickly uh, when that happens on what will undoubtedly be a random day where I'm otherwise operating a closing or doing other firm business. But I want to thank you all that have participated in 15 hours of testimony with me of maybe 50 hours of Apple versus Epic as an overall concept since last fall. If you love these conversations, first of all, I appreciate you no matter what you do. And thank you so, so much. But please consider supporting the channel. We cannot do it without viewers and listeners like you. We've got a Patreon. We've got Streamlabs. We've got a store. And please 
Tell YouTube that you love it. Subscribe, tell your friends, put it up on forums, have those conversations, get it out there across the internet. Every single little bit helps. So if you love virtual legality, I love you for helping out and making this channel even bigger than it already is. And I'm super thrilled with how successful it's proven even just during this epic versus Apple saga, really, at this point. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. Couldn't be more appreciative. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. We will surely have one last video in just the trial talking about closing statements. But otherwise, I will see you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.